The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, greetings from Crossing Church in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'd normally be uh, teaching God's Word. Also, greetings from Boyce College and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, where I serve during the week. And on the weekend, I turn my attention towards the local church. And so, greetings from both of those uh, institutions. I am also grateful for your pastor. Um, I know he gilded the lily there, but uh, he is a a real mentor uh, to me uh, personally. Interesting uh, fact about this church and uh, intersects with my life and family. It was uh, exactly 11 years ago I was worshiping with you here in this service quietly in the back. Uh, we had adopted our son from Leavenworth, Kansas, and, and uh, Rick and Patty uh, took us in and uh, just cared for us and uh, loved on us and ministered to us. And so we were here as we did our first adoption uh, here in Kansas City, and we came, obviously, to uh, this church to serve and to listen and to hear God's Word preaching, and it's kind of ironic that 11 years later, here I am standing to explicate uh, God's Word And so I've hand-selected a text for us to discover this morning. It is found in the book of Luke, Luke 16, 1 to 13 will be our text of choice this morning. The reason I've chosen Luke is in our church, we are going through the book of Luke. Uh, We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that, we start in verse 1 and we go all the way through the entire uh, gospel or letter, whichever it might be. And the reason we do that is because we really want to extract the author's thought. We really want to get the most out of the scriptures. We don't want to fly by at uh, 32,000 feet. Uh, we want to get down in the weeds of the text and really kind of wring out everything that's there for us. And so we feel like that's best to start in verse 1 and just plow your way, or as Rick mentioned earlier, march our way through uh, the, the book that we're studying. The second reason we do that at our church is that we want to teach you how to study uh, your Bible. Uh, we, we don't want you on Monday morning as elders to parachute into the Bible or, or open it up and just kind of point and see what the Lord's doing or do what Rick did, just keep reading the same passage over and over again. Uh, so these are motivations of why we, we do what we do. But we really want you to, we model teaching because we want you to study the Bible in like manner. And so it's very intentional to extract the author's meaning and very intentional that we want you to learn uh, how to do that for yourself. So I've selected Luke 16 verses 1 to 13 and our topic is entitled uh, spiritual shrewdness. So Friday night I addressed the men and we, we dealt with spiritual ruggedness. Uh, the last hour we dealt with spiritual saltiness and this hour I want to deal with spiritual shrewdness. And this is an awesome text of Scripture. And I just want you to know up front, it is the most difficult parable in all of Scripture to translate. And it's a tough text just to apply personally. And so I thought, you know what? It's Mission Road Bible Church. We need to do hard things, right? You didn't come to church to be all goofy and flat and boring. Let's dig in and do the hard things, right? So today we've got to study and we've got to learn, and we've got to apply, and I'm just letting you know up front, it's a tough text to interpret, and it's a tough text to apply, but that's why we're here, right? It's a beautiful day for preaching, it's cold outside, restaurants aren't even open, we're just here, let's just do this thing together and study God's Word. So let's look at what Dr. Luke wrote in Luke 16, 1 to 13, and I believe it'll be a fine meal uh, for us this morning. Luke 16, 1, now he was also saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you are no longer, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master has taken my management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know. Hmm. What else shall I do? So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of the master's debtors and began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? 
And he said, uh, 800 measures of oil, about 800 gallons of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill. I'll tell you what, take your bill. Sit down quickly and write off 50. 50%. And cut it in half. Then he said to another, how, how much do you owe? And he said, about 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, okay, take your bill and, and, and write 80 on it. So let's reduce that by 20%, keeping our margins solid. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, he who is faithful in very little in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will dare give you that which is not your own? Ah, no servant can really serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Folks, you cannot serve God and wealth. Gospel, spiritual shrewdness. A couple of preliminary remarks as we parachute into the middle of Luke 16. Jesus told 40 parables in the Gospels. In one, of, in one third of them, he dealt with money and possessions. So 40 in total, one third of them deal with money and possessions. This makes sense when you realize, in using his own words, that where your money is, there your heart will follow. Money works when it's a quiet servant, but destroys when it's a tyrannical master. And ladies and gentlemen, for every one man here this morning that can handle prosperity, I will show you a thousand who can actually handle poverty and lack of wealth. 15%, 15% of what Jesus said was about money. This should cause us to sit up and take note of how to handle our money. The scripture has a lot to say about money. We know for sure that we can't take it with us onto heaven and we see from a text like this that there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with money. Now, before you panic and get anxious, uh, I'm not against wealth. Jesus is not against wealth. It's very clear in, in, the, uh, in, in the book of 1 Timothy, uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 17 and 18 states this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Everything comes from the Father, money comes from the Father, and it's there to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So money's a good thing. Uh, what makes it evil is the people behind it. It's amoral. It has nothing to do with anything. It's how you deploy it, how you understand it, and how you use it. So don't panic. Uh, God doesn't hate rich people, uh, and he doesn't hate poor people either. The issue is always, folks, stewardship and shrewdness. Stewardship and shrewdness. They go hand and glove, which you see before you in this text. Now, as we approach this particular text, it's, some, it's an amazing text. Uh, this parable is amazing because Jesus, as you just saw read, Jesus uses a crooked guy to teach a straight lesson. And so it kind of, this incongruity kind of blows people's minds. They can't quite get their mind around it. As a matter of fact, I, I bet you probably read it in your Bible time before and you kind of went, sheesh, ah, move on. <laughs> you know, just we'll leave that for the pastor one day when we get to Luke. I'm not going to mess with that baby because she is tough. So you just kind of move on from it, and, and, and it's because Jesus has pointed to this corrupt guy to teach a, a pristine, pure, biblical lesson about shrewdness and, and stewardship. I mean, you, you read some things in there that should cause you alarm. The manager embezzles from his owner. 
The owner praises the sinful executive uh, for his ingenuity. Jesus points to the prodigal manager uh, as an example and holds up before us this morning an example of a prodigal guy teaching a straight lesson. Now, just before you go too far in your mind, uh, Jesus on numerous occasions used less than noble characters to be deeply instructive. Uh, he did it in Matthew 25. He does it in Matthew 13, 44. Uh, later in Luke, as a matter of fact, it's the passage I'm coming to uh, in, a, in a few weeks. Uh, later in Luke, he, he talks about the corrupt judge and the persistent widow. And, and, and so don't panic. This is, a, this is a mechanism. Jesus is a master storyteller. And, uh, and I believe this text is, is, a, is, a, is a parable with knots in it. And I want to serve you this morning by unwinding those knots, by untying knot after knot after knot, and then I can assure you it will have a powerful impact on us. Just a little bit more about context as we kind of inch our way. We're now on the front porch of this particular text. Just a little bit more about context. Before this text, uh, you have the, the prodigal son, and Jesus is in this long instruction period in in Luke, it goes from Luke 9 to Luke 19 as he's making his way to Jerusalem. So it's heavy, dense instruction, no miracles. And he just dealt with the prodigal son to teach the disciples wrong, about wrong attitudes that they might have about people. And now he turns to the prodigal steward because the same words are going to be used in this text as the prodigal son. They're both in dire distress. They both come to their senses. And so you see the same words. And so you could call this the, the prodigal steward. And it teaches and exposes wrong attitudes about money, handling wealth, and being shrewd uh, in this life. You see there from uh, verse 1 that the text is pointed towards believers. Okay? So it's, it's the, the secondary audience is obviously the scribes and Pharisees who are always on the fringe of Jesus' ministry. But this particular text is aimed at the heart of the disciples. Again, it should cause you to sit up and think, wow, this one's for me. He's picked this text for me. This text is pointed right at us this morning. Now, the text doesn't say it's a parable, but it has the same language when he says there was a rich man. It implies that there is a parable before us. A parable is very simple. It's a story. It's an earthly story with a gospel punch to it. It has a singular meaning to it. So it's an earthly story with a gospel punch, and Jesus, the master storyteller, deployed this genre of telling stories over and over again to make a point, to, to cement in us a, a major point. Both of these parables, the prodigal son, the prodigal steward, are in dire straits. And this parable is only found in Luke, except for verse 13 of this parable is extracted in, and replicated in Matthew uh, 6, 24. The parable is straightforward. Uh, there's no reason to get funky uh, with this text. We won't, we won't do that. It's straightforward, tough interpretation, and, and tough application, all right? So let's get busy. Let's jump in and, and study together, and let me serve you by unknotting this knotty rope uh, that is before us this morning, and I believe the text that is going to uh, personally bring conviction to all of our hearts this morning, starting with myself. First, there are two main characters. You're introduced to them right up front, like a typical parable. You have a wealthy businessman, a land baron, and you have a reckless business executive or uh, manager. He's kind of a desk jockey. You, you picked that up when we read the text. He said, I, I, I can't dig. He's not going to get dirty. Uh, he, this is a white-collar guy versus a blue-collar guy. No issue there, just the way the story rolls. And so this prodigal steward, this mismanaged executive, uh, has mismanaged the owner's money and company. And he lacked accountability, it's very clear in the text, and he has misappropriated funds. And so verse 1 says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So it appears that the owner, uh, the, the owner there was away, uh, probably left the business to this particular manager, and he gets word of misappropriation. And so the wealthy business owner steps in, and he asks for forensic accounting to take place. And, and, and it really is going to leave him no option but to terminate uh, this manager and this particular executive. 
Uh, he really was, uh, just to note, he, he really is a scoundrel of an employee, and he doubles down later in the text, but he wasted all the owner's money when his chief fiduciary responsibility was to preserve and build wealth of the owner. So he actually is a, a fraud. He's, he lacks bandwidth and capacity and doesn't know how to lead. He, he can't turn the thing around. And he's misappropriated all this wealthy baron's money in this particular part of his uh, portfolio. And we know from 1 Corinthians 4, 2, moreover, it is required of a steward, a manager, to be faithful. The owner just wanted him to be faithful. He wanted him to be successful. He wanted him to make money. Well, while the audit is taking place, uh, he is retained to answer questions. If you're going to do a forensic audit, you need the guy who's made all the decisions there before you. And so he's retained uh, to, to answer those questions when they would come up. And he realizes, this, this, this unjust manager, he realizes that he, uh, he's going to have no severance package. There's no, there's no golden parachute here uh, for his mismanagement. It, it, was, uh, it, it was bad what he did, and so he panics. He starts pacing. You can sense the, the kind of energy in the text. He panics, and he starts thinking about his future, and that's why you see in verse 3, the manager said to himself. So he's kind of walking around outside the business thinking, what am I going to do? How are we going to handle this? Uh, you know, word's going to get out. Uh, I, I got I to figure out something to do. This is the kind of story. This is the energy. And so panic forces him to get innovative. Now, innovation usually comes for, for two reasons. If you're a good innovator, you do it because of pleasure. There's something that doesn't exist out there that you actually want, and so you invent it or you innovate it. Or it comes by pain right? There's something that doesn't work, and you're going to come up with a solution or pain. In this case, you're about to lose your job, and so you're going to get innovative. And so this business manager is crafty as a fox, and he weighs his options. First option, he says in the text, he says, what shall I do since my master is, going to, is taking the management away from me? So he knows he's going to be terminated, right? He says, okay, I'm not strong enough to to dig. And we already dealt with this spiritual ruggedness on Friday night, right? Uh, th this guy's doughy, uh, passive. You know, he doesn't want to get his fingers dirty. He probably gets a manicured. Favorite stores, Bed Bath & Beyond. And Beth, you know what I'm saying? He's got the creams and the lotions. And, you know, you can, you can see what's going on in this text. He's like, I, I can't dig. I mean, good night. I'd get dirty. You know, my back, I got a little back pain. You know, what am I going to do? And so he's a desk jockey. That's option one. I can't do that. And then he says, well, I'm too prideful to beg. For help or humble myself, maybe go to my family and ask for a bridge loan. Hey, what's family for, right? That's the first stop when you're in need. Go to family and because you treated them sweet, right? Your whole life, they step up and say, hey, here's 100 grand. That'll cover you for a little while, get you through the economic, global economic collapse, right? So you humble yourself. And uh, so he says, well, I, I can't beg. I'm not going to do that. I've got too much pride in my life. So it forces innovation. It forces creativity, and he devises this felonious plan and scheme, and um, he needs to execute quickly because he knows he's going to be terminated. So he chooses option C, which is to be crafty as a fox. He needed a new gig to protect his selfish, egotistical ways. He needed a backup plan. And so the text says he, he comes to his senses. Same phrase in the Greek language used of the prodigal son is used of the prodigal steward here. He comes to his senses. He's in dire straits. He's at the end of the rope, end of the line, and he has to make some choices here. And so he doesn't sit idle, which you kind of appreciate. He comes to his senses and he says, listen, I need to think like an owner, not as a manager. And he knows there's some debtors out there that owe him a bunch of money. And in the Hebrew culture, hospitality and indebtedness, if you took care of somebody, it was built within hospitality in, in this process, in the Jewish milieu, in the culture that they would owe you. And so he gets the brilliant idea. He says, I know before word gets to a couple people who owe them big dollars, I'm going to go to them and I'm going to write down their debt so that when I lose my job, they're going to feel horrible and they're going to take me in and cover me and, and, and cover me until I can get back on my feet, which he doubles down, right? He embezzles uh, from the boss's money. Now he's embezzling uh, his, his relationships. I mean, 
But he, he knows if he shows goodwill towards these guys, then certainly they will show goodwill to him. Wicked as he was, folks, he had an eye to the future. He needed a plan. He needed a backup plan. His plan was crazy shrewd. Simple put, he was going to buy some friends. He was going to buy himself some time by immorally negotiating the debts that he did not have permission to do. It was operation planned for the future by making friends in the present. Wasn't too bad of a plan. Felonious, wrong, but this is the issue. And so he schemes and robs again from his owner. Since since word had not gotten to him. So the next section in the story, he just goes through to add some detail to it, some color, 100 measures, about 800 gallons of olive oil, right set down 50%. It's about three years' wages, so significant. 100 measures of wheat, that's uh, about 100 acres. That would yield, cuts it to 80, reduces it by 20%. Uh, Brilliant, brilliant plan. They'll owe me big time. So if I need wheat, if I need oil... Uh, whatever I need, I'm going to be covered. Now, what happens next in verse 8 is absolutely shocking. Uh, this is what causes interpreters consternation. This is what everybody gets all, you know, wigged out about and get all their, their, their hair all messed up and, and, and just panic and think, oh, how does Jesus use a bad guy to teach a good lesson? And listen, let me help you. Don't panic. Relax. Scriptures are sufficient, true, right, and pure. No problem here. And so Jesus praises in verse 8. you got to see it again because it's worth it. <laughs> and, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. And you're going, wow, that's crazy. I mean, how do I deal with that? Jesus praising an immoral prodigal manager because he acted shrewdly? Uh, this, is, this is crazy. And so it perplexes people. Well, let me unperplex you. Okay, this morning, and I, and I think it'll be awesome, and you'll see it. Now, Jesus commends him for acting shrewdly, for forward thinking, for thinking out in front, thinking ahead, for plotting, not, listen, not for being dishonest, not for stealing, and, and not wanting his owner's money. He's not commending that. He's not honoring for that. He's only honoring the guy in this fabricated story to make a point for his shrewdness. The master commends shrewdness, not his sinfulness. You got to catch that. Not his sinfulness. And Jesus being the master storyteller takes charge of the story. The manager was categorically dishonest. He had broke the eighth commandment for goodness sake, right? You see, shrewdness is not a moral quality. This is not an issue of Jesus affirming his sin or not sin. Don't panic. Not a reason to do that. Jesus is simply recognizing his ingenious plan and foresight and his sinful cleverness, his shrewdness. So here's the principle here in verses 8 and 9. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of life. Listen to this. This ruthless yet shrewd manager has put more thought, listen, more thought and energy into his earthly matters as a son of this age, living in present tense, than the sons of light, or believers, synonym for believers, put in eternal matters. This guy has put more energy in caring for his temporal earthly state then the average believer puts energy into thinking about the eternal state and eternal matters as manifest in their handling of wealth. His shrewdness, in verse 8, embarrasses our zeal for eternal matters. This is what Jesus is trying to teach. This is the singular meaning of this parable. His crazy Unbelieving shrewdness rattles our puny zeal for eternal matters. Sinners are more skilled at securing their physical well-being and temporal future than believers are securing their eternal reward and spiritual well-being. Compliment text, Colossians 3.1. Set your affections on things above, right? 
So this guy is setting his affections on things of the earth at doing it a bazillion times better than the average believer deals shrewdly in dealing with eternal matters. Jesus is simply saying and pointing to this immoral manager saying, listen, we're stewards, not owners. We need to deploy gospel shrewdness. We are citizens of another world, Philippians 3. We're not from these parts. You say, I'm from Kansas. No, you're not. If you're a believer, your citizenship is dual. It's in heaven first and then Kansas City. You need to start thinking about eternity. You need to start thinking about eternal matters, right? That's, that's what he's trying to articulate. We need to set our affections on things above. We need to use our money for, for, for kingdom efforts, to buy up eternal opportunities, to, 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 to buy up treasure that lasts when moth and rust corrupts in this Genesis 3 world and, and money flies, as Proverbs says, away, it makes itself wings and flies away, then what will you do? I mean, when was the last time you paced about your house thinking, ah, what do I need to give to this year? What, this Sunday, what do I need to... What ministry, where can I invest for gospel? When's the last time your wife and you were fussing about how much money to give because you can't figure out which ministry to give to? This is the kind of picture that Jesus is, is painting here. Hey, we're just coming off, four, you know, we're only about four weeks out, right, from our New Year's resolutions. Which of us had on their New Year's resolution, we're going to go from 10% to 20% in giving? I mean, was it even on the radar? This is what Jesus is saying. The average believer doesn't shrewdly think about eternity, they are like unbelievers thinking about temporal life. And they worry about this planet, and they keep mowing this planet while eternity is before them, and they're setting up camp here when actually they're from there, and this is the issue. And so the unbeliever is so worried about his temporal world, but he outwits, outsmarts, outplays the average believer who should be from another world thinking about eternal matters. So he uses a corrupt business manager to teach a straight lesson. This guy's example uh, puts our cold stinginess to shame. And so that's the point. We need to be more shrewd and outwit, outplay, and outthink eternity than the average unbeliever thinks about this life. And puts all his energy into this life. Our energy, our best energy, is invested in the next life. And this is the single parable. So then you think, well, what does that look like? How do we do that? I mean, what does that look like? If that's the point, we need to deploy uh, spiritual shrewdness. As a local church, we need to deploy spiritual shrewdness. Then, then how do I do that? What does that look like? Good question. That's exactly what Jesus does next. He says, here's the point. Now here's how you do it. We're not to be lovers of money. We're not to be all in and invested in this life. We're to be shrewd. We're to be wise in how we handle it. And so the application follows in 9 to 13. Jesus provides us with the three ways to deploy spiritual shrewdness. These are the three ways that you and me need to deploy spiritual shrewdness. First, I call your attention to verse 9. It is this. Make everlasting friends. Make everlasting friends. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of wealth of unrighteousness. What is this wealth of unrighteousness? It's, it's wealth or money that's tied to this world. It's just a, a descriptor to talk about money in this age. Dollars, greenbacks, money, cash. This, this is wealth of unrighteousness because it doesn't have an eternal value. It doesn't, you can't take it with you. It's only good for this planet at this time. He's saying this. Use your money, your wealth, to benefit others' eternal life. You, you, you're going to buy it so that when it fails, when it goes away, the money, they will receive you in eternal dwellings. That when you get to heaven, there is going to be a ton, a ton of people there to welcome you and to greet you and to say thank you for investing and paying the bills of the gospel. Right? So if you're going to be investing, double down by buying and making 
eternal friends, right? Buy friends for Christ. Buy friends for eternity. Remember, the context here is money and wealth, personal wealth. You're to love your neighbor as yourself, really. That's really in the Bible. That's there. You're to invest and sacrifice in others, eternal status. That's where you put your capital. You are to be winning people to Christ by giving and being generous and not stingy. Uh, you're, you're paying the bills of the gospel. You send it ahead, Matthew 16, 19 to 21. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We saw it in 1 Timothy 6 where you, you, you see him speaking, Paul, to the rich saying, hey, invest in something other than here and now. Thoreau wrote on one occasion that a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. Randy Alcorn has a great little state statement. What is true wealth? What do you own that money can't buy and death can't take away? That's your real net worth. You didn't catch it, so let me say it again. What do you have right now that money can't buy and death can't take away? That is the point of this parable. So Jesus points this shrewdness to his disciples and say, listen, get all in. Be generous. Give yourself away. Give of everything you got. Don't waste your money on stuff that will ultimately be burned up. Some of you have some beautiful homes, but I'm just letting you know it is going to be toast one day. You're going to lose it. It's just a tent, you know, and, and it's gone. It is going away. I can assure you, it, it is not going to be in perpetuity. So just practically, then skip a latte this week and give it to missions. This is how you start, start to think. This is how you start to apply a simple parable of this, about this. You know, we spend more money on gum, mints, and coffee, and dog food than we do on global missions. That's the truth. It's crazy. Do we use our money in such a manner that, w- that, that we will see people in eternity and they will be glad to receive us? Every dollar given, every dollar given, gets deployed into making everlasting friends. Jesus basically said there in verse 9, buy friends in eternity. Invest in that. That's what matters. That's what you can take with you. That's the first point of application. Second, be faithful with the little stuff. Be faithful with the little stuff. Look at verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, money, cash, who will entrust you with true riches, honestly? If you're stingy and you squeak when you walk, who in the world is going to trust you with anything? That's what Jesus is saying. You're crazy. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own one day? So if you've not been a faithful manager of someone else's business, certainly you're not going to get a business yourself. If you can't manage your money... You are untrustworthy, Jesus said, to care for God's people. Kind of hard, right? Remember I told you up front, tough text. If, if, you, can't, if you can't be faithful with the little stuff, you, you, can't be, you can't be faithful with the big stuff. It's an argument from lesser to greater. But it's not just in the category of money. It's really in all of life, right? In, in, in our sphere, Rick and I's sphere of, of gospel ministry, listen, if, if you're too big for a little church, you're too little for a big church. That's just the way it is. If you can't minister faithfully to God's people, if you're too big to say, I'm a part of a little church, it's growing, you want this big church, we tell these guys all the time, then you're, you're too little for a big church. You, you, you don't even get it. You've got to be faithful with the little stuff. Remember, the whole lesson is shrewdness and stewardship. These are top priorities for any gospel family in Mission Road Bible Church. What are you doing with your money in good stewardship and shrewdness, right? This is how the kingdom works. And so we're first tested with the little things before we're granted larger ones. When money 
becomes your life, listen, you'll never think you have enough. I'm telling you, some of you are thinking, if I, when I get to $50,000, I'm going to call some of the elders and start giving. College students, seminary students, you're thinking, hey, when I get to my first post, then I'm going to start giving. Some of you are thinking, if I could just get over six figures, if I can get to six figures plus one dollar, I'll be in the upper 20% of the whole economic class, wealthy compared to the rest of the world who lives on two dollars a day, just 15 billion people besides that. But uh, you, you're, you're gonna, I'm going to start giving. No, you won't. You won't do it. It doesn't work that way. It just flat out doesn't work like that. If you're not faithful with the little stuff, you'll never be faithful with the big stuff. That is an axiomatic gospel principle embedded in the fiber and DNA of this world. It is a fact. That's why when you test someone's leadership, you test them with the little stuff. If they can handle the little stuff, you give them bigger stuff. And I know some of you are probably thinking, if I had a million dollars, if I sold this piece of land, if I had a million dollars, if the economy would turn back, if the real estate market would turn back in Kansas City, if I could just get on the loop and buy a piece of property and flip that sucker, then I'd... I, I give so much to Jesus. No, you won't. Because if you're stingy now, you'll be stingy then. You don't get it. It's always about stewardship. It's always about shrewdness in life. Faithful is as faithful does in the present tense. That is the fact. So you've got to learn to be faithful with the little stuff. It's never an issue of dollars and money. Don't worry about the dollars. It's always an issue of integrity. That's why stewardship is in play here. Listen, if God gets your heart, he's got your wallet. If he doesn't have your wallet, you should question the heart piece. Just being honest. I mean, we'd want you to do that. Money destroys more people than it helps. Can a rich man be in heaven? Oh, absolutely. There's parables about it. There's lots of rich guys in scripture. Abraham, David. I mean, they're cash flowing. They got a portfolio. They bought Apple. There's no problem when it was low. Crazy to buy now, by the way. Um, that, that they're okay. That's okay. That's not an issue. The issue is always stewardship. It's never about volume. How much you give, we don't care here. <laughs> Mr. Robot, honest, we don't care. That you give, oh, that you give is massive. How much you give, don't even care. Don't look at it, don't care. Just want to know that you know that Jesus is the consummate giver. He gave his life, so therefore you can give a few dollars. See, it's not complicated. It's not hard. If he gets your life, he gets your wallet, it's always an issue uh, of the heart. Can I tell you that generosity is the antidote for materialism? So if you're struggling, and you've got an image in your mind of what you think you need to have, or you've got the American dream going, um, the antidote of that is materialism. So whenever you're feeling stingy, give extra. Just to dislodge the controlling, idolistic fashion of what money can do to a person's heart. You remember Luke 21? We're going to get to it soon in our church. The poor widow with the, with, with the widow's mites. I mean, didn't have anything. Jesus commended her, not because of the volume she gave. Like, wow, she gave a million dollars. Our deacon's fund is through the roof. We're not going to have any problems. We're going to be able to buy the park and grow like crazy. No. It's faithful with the little. You give until it hurts. Randy Alcorn again, in his little book, The Treasure Principle, which I commend to you for homework this week, but it's a great book. He asks a good question. It's a question I wrestle with every year. When God prospers you, is your first response to raise your standard of living or to raise your standard of giving? You want that one again? All in favor? Okay, good. (laughs) I'll do it. When God prospers you, Is your first response to raise your standard of living or to raise your standard of giving? This is is needling, but this is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here. This is is true of all life. 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Moreover, it is expected of stewards to be what? First, faithful. If you can't do the little stuff, you are untested and therefore untrustworthy. Verses 11 and 12 are emphatic. God doesn't reward those who waste opportunity. 
loss of eternal ward. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so we manage our finances for the glory of God and for future reward. You buy up and make everlasting friends. Second thing you do, if you're a great steward, you're faithful with the little stuff around here. You're faithful. And it works all of life. I mean, you don't have to have a position in the church. You say, I'll be more than happy to set up chairs. You know, I, I ran, you know, met the CEO of Adwala, Weight Watchers this week, um, board and milk. You know what they were doing in the local church? Putting the chairs out of the trailer in a church plant, putting the chairs out of the trailer in the building. Hey, what do you do? I work for a little company. What does that mean? Uh, I work for a milk company. What kind of milk company? You know, the, you know what I'm saying? You go through the sequence of questions and you realize, oh my goodness, this guy's serious. Capacity and octane. But you see the humility? He didn't care. Because in this place, it grounds level. The cross has a leveling effect on all of us. It doesn't matter what you make. That's not the issue. It's always stewardship, servanthood, humility. These are things that the kingdom prizes. These are the things that, that get God's attention. To this man will I look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. These are the kind of things. So you're faithful with the little stuff. Third application from this text. It's there in verse 13. You can't have two masters. Folks, you can't have two masters. We must be single-minded with respect to money. You can't walk in two directions at the same time. And again, money works when it's a quiet servant but destroys and unravels when it's a tyrannical master. Don't, don't allow money to be an idol. Money starts out like a string, becomes a cord, and becomes a rope, and it will hang you. Like I said, for every one of you that could handle prosperity, most can't, I'll show you a thousand people who can handle poverty. Thousands, thousands, and thousands. Joy, smiling. Listen, listen, I'm speaking on behalf of the elders, and this will freak them out. We don't need your money, okay? We, we honestly, keep your money. If, you don't, if you're not doing it with a smile and with joy in your heart and because you've been redeemed and you're on your way to heaven, listen, I'm going to walk on stuff. People are killing themselves over here. This earth is a ghetto compared to heaven. Ghetto. Sorry, I just went into preacher mode for a second. It actually scared me too. So I actually frightened myself. Uh, Sorry. I don't know where that came from, Rick. Sometimes the Baptist comes out. I'm back in Bible church mode. I'm teaching. Be cool. Calm. Calm. I saw Spurgeon's pulpit. It says, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's written right here. So I'm sorry. I scared myself. So we're all in this together. Let's get composure. Focus. All right. It's Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, I have a simple philosophy of life. Love people, use things. Never use people and love things. So loose grip. Don't hold on to stuff. And if you're struggling, get rid of it. Just give it away. Some of you got two iPods. You are, what is wrong with you? Give one away. I need one. I mean, you... You've got phones and gadgets and junk. And this, I mean, good gravy. You know, give stuff away. You, you go through your cabinets and just purge and say, we're giving, whatever we have to, we're, 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 we're getting rid of it. I do need a rifle, particular 270. <laughs> I remember on one occasion reading about John Wesley, a horse rider, uh, barged in on John Wesley while he's preaching a text of, of scripture. And he said, John Wesley, your house is on fire. Wesley quickly quipped, God's house is on fire. Had the right perspective. This stuff isn't ours. Stewardship is about God owns everything, and we're just managing and stewards. That's why it's a, it's a parable of a manager, and God is the, the baron here in the text. Listen, if God is your master, your money will be your servant. When money becomes your master, you know your faith is diminishing. It's, it's, it's getting fuzzy. It's clouded in how you think. It's useless to try to serve God in money. Look at that text. No servant, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't get any more emphatic. And for the guy who plows the parking lot, he sticks a landing 
You cannot serve God and wealth, right? Listen, I recognize this is a material world. First John 2 is in play. It's tough. I mean, the pressure's on. But you have to constantly sit under the, the yoke of God's word and shepherd your heart and think, this is not what life is about. And from time to time, and it's crazy. Listen, I thought about, am I going to go into this church and preach on money? I've got some sugar sticks, like revivalistic, everyone will get saved messages. I don't. I'm just kidding. Um, but I was thinking, like, really, do I, Lord, do you really want me to talk about this? Yeah, because I, it's not about money. So this isn't a sermon about money. It's about shrewdness. It's about you and your wife sitting around the table saying, how much more could, hmm, I got to raise. How much more could we give? We could give all of it. <laughs> you crazy. Call me crazy. Let's give all of it away. Let's not change our living. Let's not upgrade, you know, 4,800 square feet. It's enough for us, too. I mean, <laughs> sheesh. You know, I mean, you're living in Prairie something. I mean, look at these homes. I mean, come on. Come on. Right? We make choices every day, right? We could all live in tents in a field. Be cold out, but we could do it. But I understand that. This is not the issue. It's always, as Paul told Timothy, shepherd the rich guy and just say, hey, dude, use your money for gospel reasons. Jesus says, be shrewd with your money. Don't be like this guy who squanders the portfolio, who, who takes all the money to himself, he plots and fails. So this is a crazy text. You feeling stingy? Give something away. Money is to be viewed as a servant and not our God. And so you see why this is a crazy text? Jesus strikes a straight blow with this crooked guy and commentators just like, they can't figure it out. It's not complicated. It's a simple principle. You will answer to God for how you deal with your money. I will answer to God with how I deal with my money. So I close with kind of two challenges. Number one, if you're here today and it's possible you've been visiting for some time, you're checking out the church, most of the time we gather there's guests here, and for some reason you're thinking you give a bunch and you can buy your way into heaven, I just need to remind all of us you can't. Because some people actually think, you know, if I, I, I gave, you know. Well, remember Matthew 7, there's those that cast out demons in his name, did miracles. I mean, heads were spinning around backwards. And I mean, it, it was resurrection. I mean, that's crazy stuff. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, remember, you can't buy your way into heaven. It's by faith alone in Christ alone to be a sacrifice for your sin. You need forgiveness. You need Jesus and you need to fall in the mercies of God. You better know Christ, because that's the only entrance into heaven. So I would at least ask you to pause and say, hey, am I using my money? Do I actually think that I'm working this deal? And that certainly he's going to look at me, and because I give a, an astronomical amount, therefore I'm going to get in heaven. It doesn't work that way. So I just need to, you know, burst your bubble there. Second, to do nothing with this text is a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. This is Jesus himself talking here. This is why as a church planter we live in close proximity to Jesus because we're trying to constantly get how did he think, how did he live, how did he act. That's why we talked about that last hour. Uh, to do nothing with this text, um, huge mistake. God is the consummate giver. You can't be generous enough. And I think I'm just asking you to have conversations. I don't care how much you give. I'm just asking you to have new conversations in your home, new conversations when you get a raise, new conversations as you think through the New Year's resolution, say, what could I do? And start paying the bills of the gospel. Everyone, college student, high school student, everyone. You start now, faithful with what? Little? Because you're going to establish disciplines and rhythms and patterns, young people, that will mature as you get older. So if you think one day if I get to a certain level, I'm going to really bless Jesus, give him some stuff. He owns everything, okay? So he doesn't need your, your money or your iPod. I need your iPod. He doesn't need your iPod. So um, that's the way it is, all right? So if you're not here, if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, 
uh, we're here down front. We'd love to talk to you after the service. You can come up and say, hey, and I'd, I'd love to walk you through the scriptures. Rick's here. The elders are they're all around. They're like mice all over the church. You can just find one and just pull any dude aside, and he'll share the, the gospel with you or gal uh, likewise. So you can do that. And if you're here today and you truly are a believer, which this text is pointed towards, you know, he's not talking about the rich guy who's an unbeliever and let's wear him out. He's talking about believers here. Then I would beg you to be a good steward and and sly as a fox and shrewd in how you deal with your money. All right? Challenge said. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word this morning. Uh, tough parable, tough text. But I pray that we'd all apply it uh, to our lives. No one's exempt here this morning. And I just ask that you would bear much fruit, fruit that I couldn't even plan for. You would do a work, that there would be new conversations tonight, new relationships in light of Sunday school and in light of this hour, the, the, in light of Friday night, all these texts, I pray that you would help us never to forget them um, and that you would cement them into our DNA and into our thinking and that we would forever be the most generous people on planet earth here in Kansas City. In your name I pray, amen. Well, thanks, Dan, for so much that I learned today. You know what? I, one of the things I did not know before today that's a good sound. That scared me. I wasn't even asleep, and I woke up when you did that. Um, okay, here, here's the deal. Can we just talk as friends for a minute? Uh, I've involved in seminary education for a long time. Dan's involved in seminary education. One of the things they tell you in preaching classes, when you go to a visiting church, just do something generic. Just do some big God, great Christ. You know, Don't ever try to get in their kitchen and don't talk about money. I did not ask Dan to do that today, uh, but thank you for that. That was, that was painfully glorious. Amen? Well, Stan will be dismissed. Our prayer room is open, as Dan said. Uh, Steve and Debbie will be here. We'd love to talk to you, shepherd you, pray for you, bear a burden with you. It would be our joy to talk to you about Jesus. Father, dismiss us now with marching orders to go and talk about our priorities. And before it burns, cause us to think about how it could be used for the extension of ministry. Thankful for this text. Thankful for my friend Dan. Thankful for the, the point of this passage that really pulls at our heartstring in so many levels. So clear, so convicting. Give us grace to honor and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.